0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 1st, we are studying Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Jesus has spent the day teaching, and now he invites his disciples to go with him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The trip is eventful, to say the least. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstott, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Good morning, Pastor Apple. Good to be back with you. Happy February to you and to all of our listeners.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Ill, let's talk a little context. We've had a lot of Jesus teaching in the previous texts. Today, it's going to transition a little bit. What's going on here in the Gospel of Mark?
1: Mark has this kind of back and forth between a section of teaching and then a section of miracles. And our reading today is the first of a series of miracles. So uh, on Friday, we ended up with talking about how Jesus was teaching and the parables that Jesus was giving, parables like the sower and the lamp under a basket and the patient farmer with the field mixed with uh, weeds in it um, and the faith, uh, how faith is like a mustard seed. Uh, But then, all of a sudden, Jesus is going across the sea with his disciples, and he's going to start a series of miracles that show us not just what Jesus teaches, but what Jesus does. And when you take this combination of what Jesus teaches and what Jesus does, it shows us a full and complete picture of who Jesus is. The one who creates and sustains faith, the one who comforts his people in fear and the one who has complete and total control over all things, including creation.
0: So this text serves as a a bit of a hinge point then. We've just finished that long series of Jesus teaching, a lot of the words in red that you get in chapter 4. This is going to catapult us into a section of several of Jesus' miracles. Is there anything in the content of what Jesus was teaching in those parables in chapter four that you think sets the stage for these miracles. And just so you're not sort of thrown out, well, what is he thinking? Here's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm just thinking about some of the things that Jesus has said, particularly with the parable of the sower and how Jesus describes the seed being sown in different types of soil and different effect. Is there maybe a bit of an illustrative purpose happening in some of these miracles? For example, with that parable or any of the other ones. I don't know. What do you think, Hill? Um
1: I do think so. If you were to take the those parables out of Mark chapter four, uh, the sower sowing seed everywhere, um, the lamp under a basket, that field where the farmer doesn't uproot any of the weeds lest they damage the uh, the grain with them, and faith growing like a mustard seed, um, all of those have the growth of faith and the evidence of faith as a theme. And then you get to this miracle. And I think this miracle is more tightly tied to uh, to those parables and the miracles that follow it. But here at the end of our miracle, uh, I guess we should just talk a little bit about what happens in our reading today. As Jesus is going across the sea, there's a storm. His disciples wake him up and say, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus stands up and he speaks to the storm. He calms it. And the disciples in the boat say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they were afraid. Um, And in the middle of that, you have this question of who is Jesus? And do we have that mustard seed, sown faith kind of a thing going on uh, among us here? Here? is the disciples' question. And so they do. But this is all about Jesus not just giving parables that talk about faith, but he's doing actions that throw the direct question at the disciples. Do you believe that I am the one who controls nature? And do you believe that I am the one who rescues you? And do you believe that I am who I say that I am? That is the question, and all of those parables get kind of thrown uh, right into the disciples' face, challenging them as they're in the middle of this storm and right after Jesus calms the storm.
0: It strikes me that this first miracle that we see here at the end of chapter 4 is done in the presence of the disciples, and it is their reaction that gets highlighted at the end of the text by St. Mark, and they're confused, as we will talk about, and you already told us a little bit here, Pastor Ill, and that that's somewhat surprising of all the people who had heard Jesus' parables. We know that they got explanations, and so for them to uh, miss the boat, uh, that was a really bad one, Pastor Ill. It was, it
1: was bad but bad it, I'm chuckling over here. It's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for them to miss the boat right here, I mean, it's just terribly ironic, and, and a, I don't know, tragic is maybe a little bit strong of a word, but of all the people that should have seen this and gotten something from it, it would have been the disciples. And then again, I know I don't want to get too far afield here from, from us, but as the context continues, Jesus is going to be on the other side of the lake in the Gentile region. And there's going to be a demoniac there who will have the demon kicked out by Jesus. And that man is actually going to want to stick around with Jesus and Jesus is going to send him. It's just, I guess My point is that some of the things that we saw in those previous parables, for example, the way that the seed grows, even though the farmer doesn't know and he just patiently watches and God provides the growth and he does it like a mustard seed in a a way that may look small at first, but it, it grows. I think we're seeing some of that surprising nature of the kingdom of God at work in this string of miracles, starting with this one some of those things in the parables that are being illustrated here. So that's, that's kind of some of the things that I'm noticing any more introductory material before we jump into the text.
1: You, you kind of bring up a good point that I, I think is worth at least thinking about for a second. And that is the way that the disciples get portrayed in Mark's gospel. Uh, Hmm. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is pretty rough on the disciples and uh, there's not very many attaboys but there are lots and lots of questions and lots and lots of statements of "Oh, you of little faith," even like we have here, and the disciples are are often confused, they're often worried, and they're often afraid. And while on the one hand, this makes this makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, man, shouldn't disciples have it somewhat, you know, put together? But on the other hand, it certainly helps me in the days that I'm afraid, and in the days when I worry, and in the days when I have a hard time uh, seeing and believing God's grace. I fit that pattern of the disciples in Mark's gospel. And so the day when I rush to Jesus in my prayers and say, hey, aren't you paying attention? And then I hear this, where Jesus responds and says, oh, you of little faith. And after Jesus' work is finished, saying very much like the disciples, who is this Jesus, Uh, is actually comforting to say that I'm not the first one to react this way. I'm not alone.
0: Uh, The example of grace that was shown to Jesus' disciples is always a great encouragement to us as Christians still today. Uh, We should should constantly take comfort from that example that we see of Jesus showing grace to these men who were confused and afraid and didn't really understand what was going on all the time, such that we know that when we are in those same places, our Lord is going to be gracious and merciful to us as well. Fantastic. And I think this really is the first, just thinking back through what we've seen so far in the gospel of Mark, this is really the first extended example that we see that in the disciples we we saw earlier Peter coming to look for Jesus when he was off praying by himself. But this I think is really the first example where the disciples we start to see uh, are, are learning. <laughs> they they need this teaching from Jesus, and so that that's an important point to make as we get into the text for today. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us, Pastor El. This is Mark chapter four, beginning at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he Jesus said to them his disciples, "Let us go across to the other side of the lake." He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That is the text for today, Mark chapter 4, verses 35-41. through 41. Pastor L, as we look at this text as a whole, we are talking about one of Jesus' miracles here. We have seen other miracles from our Lord in the Gospel of Mark, as you said, this is one that's providing a transition from a time of Jesus teaching into a series of his miracles. As we think about Jesus' miracles, you've got some rules for us. When we read a miracle text, how do we need to approach it? Help us set some of those ground rules.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of picky and fussy about about miracles and how we read them and how we understand them. Uh, I remember back when I was in seminary and I took uh, my first preaching class, uh, they My very first preaching class was all about how to preach, especially from the gospel text, but they said, Now now, don't preach on parables or miracles yet. We have some ground rules to learn. That's a whole different class. And there are some ways that we can we can kind of get confused when we read especially miracles. So the first and foremost rule of reading a miracle passage like this one is, what does this reading say about Jesus? There's lots and lots of questions that come up in miracles, like, what did it look like when the waves were calmed and when the wind stopped? How loud was Jesus' voice? Or uh, with my congregation, I was getting to study Jesus feeding the 5,000 a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, well, you know, what did it look like as Jesus was was breaking these loaves and these fish and passing them out? Well, Well, we don't know. But sometimes... Uh, it's important for us to remember it isn't how Jesus did what Jesus did, but what Jesus' actions teach us about him. The other thing that can happen when we're reading a miracle text is that we sometimes want to read ourselves into it and make that reading about us. Uh, That sometimes is talked about as spiritualizing. Uh, and, And quite honestly, it happens quite a lot. Uh, but we want to make sure today that we read this text as it's centered on Jesus, not centered on on us today and on our circumstances. does that does that make sense, Pastor Apple?
0: That does and I appreciate I'm going to start with your first point there as as you were laying it out i I certainly agree with you that we want to make sure we understand what is this teaching us about who Jesus is and not get too wrapped up in questions that the text doesn't answer. Having said that, I I do think that there is a healthy place for a sanctified imagination, if I can say it that way, such that we don't become too mechanical with the text, but we recognize that this is Jesus, a real human being interacting with other real human beings in a real-life situation, in this case, on a rather tumultuous sea with people who are afraid for their lives and not lose sight of the the reality of the text, if I can say it that way. Does that make and I don't think those two things are, are mutually exclusive. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that we didn't think about Jesus as a as a person who who said words with his voice and the water in this he obeyed. Uh, I think there is a healthy point for this kind of mysterious wonder of things that Things that we aren't going to stand before the resurrection and might not even understand after the resurrection. And that's completely and totally okay to say, I don't know how Jesus broke the five loaves and the two fish. I don't know how loud Jesus' voice was. Um, But what I do know is this that Jesus commanded the sea and the wind, and it did exactly what he told it to do. That I know for sure. Some of the other stuff, I don't know so much. And that's okay. But I think that culturally, there can be a time when we want to say, well, if Jesus believed in the words that he said, and he commanded the sea, if I believe in Jesus, and if I believe the words that I can say, I can command the weather too. Uh, And we definitely don't want to get into that of saying, well, just because Jesus did this, in a miracle means that i by faith can do exactly the same thing that and that's what i'm trying to uh, watch out for
0: certainly certainly that would be asking the question what would jesus do and trying to apply it in a rather unhelpful way and yeah. a way that would lead you down some pretty pretty wrong paths so and that i think helps with a, a bit of a bridge to that second point you make this temptation that exists to spiritualize miracles or to read ourselves into the text in ways that the text doesn't actually invite. Can you give us an example of, and and just with this text in particular, of what that might look like of spiritualizing a text like that?
1: Um, you could you could do it just like this by saying, oh, well, you know, when we see a boat, uh, a lot of times we think about the boat as the church. And so uh, Jesus is present with his church, but it seems like he's sleeping. and And then you go and you wake him up and Jesus rescues the church. But that means that, for us today, it's important that we make sure that we wake Jesus up and make sure that he knows what's going on so that he can rescue us. And, uh, or, um, individual Christians need to approach Jesus in prayer because Jesus won't rescue you until you'll pray. Um, scripture doesn't teach that. And this text doesn't teach that. And I think a lot of Christians would say, well, well, I don't, I don't believe that that would say that. But sometimes we hear that same kind of a thing uh, brought up really, really often of, well, do I need, you know, is Jesus waiting on me to ask him, to wake him up, if you will, uh, before he will act for me? Uh, Does Jesus need me to do this or that? And anytime you start asking what Jesus needs from us in order to get Jesus to do what we think we need him to do. We're really running into problems because we just took this biblical text; it's about Jesus, and made it about how we can get the things that we need from Jesus. And and we've really kind of got the cart before the horse now.
0: What about? And I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard it. I may have said it in my past. The the taking a text like this and saying this is an example of how Jesus can calm the storms in your life and you end up, I think, spiritualizing the storms. Would that
1: be something else we would want to avoid? Exactly. If we start to talk about this literal storm as the um, as a metaphor for the challenges and the trials that we have in our life, uh, that would be another example of spiritualizing this, of saying uh, when you have storms in your life, if you pray, Jesus will just calm them and they'll go away. Uh, and That's not exactly what this text teaches either. To talk about it that way talks about uh, it puts the storm as the main character in the parable, or maybe yourself as the main character in the parable. But for Mark, the main character in this parable isn't the storm. It isn't the disciples in the boat. It's not you and me as readers of this miracle. But it's Jesus Himself, and so we always want to make sure that we keep Jesus as the subject of these miracle accounts. Mm.
0: Uh, that's that's a well said. That when we come across a miracle, as we have in today's text, let's keep Jesus the main character. I I think that's a, a very simple and helpful point for us, so that we don't. And that's probably true in most of Scripture that we want to we want to do that. We want to keep Jesus as the actor, and and you know, I mean, that's what he says. Is true, the old testament is about him. He's the one who's who's working, and he's true. That's true in the New Testament as well. So let's let's let Jesus be the main character, the main actor in this miracle. Let's not over spiritualize it. Let's not oh, what were your other rules? Let's make sure we understand what this is saying about Jesus. Okay, so let's with those rules in mind, Pastor Ill, let's start, and we've said well some things that this parable isn't saying. Let's start working as to and not parable, miracle it's a miracle <laughs> as we start thinking about what this miracle is teaching us about Jesus let's 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 get going so start taking us into the text itself things seem pretty straightforward in terms of the scene that is set and what happens
1: yeah um, and there might be a couple of things that I uh, as we kind of chat through the text I might just say a couple of things so we can talk about them more a little bit later um, sure. but it starts out in uh, there in mark 4 verse 35 mentioning that it was evening and Jesus says, let's go across to the other side. Um, and then in verse 36, I it makes me chuckle a little bit. It says that uh, leaving the crowd, they, that is the disciples, took Jesus with them. And so after we've just spent so much time talking about Jesus being the main character, the subject of the verb here is is the disciples leave and they take Jesus along. Uh, and so now I'm giggling a little bit. But it also mentions that as they go in the boat, there's other boats with them. And then the other boats kind of disappear. And I've often wondered, maybe this is part of that kind of mysterious wondering, what happened to the other boats? Did they go a little way? And then when the storm got rough, did they turn around? Was it not their intent to go the whole way across the sea? Were they there when Jesus calmed the storm? It it doesn't say uh, what happened with these other boats. It makes me curious. And maybe... In the resurrection, Jesus will see fit to make it known to us, and maybe not. But it does have me scratching my head a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, no, ag- agreed. And if I could just real briefly, as you were saying, you know, Jesus is the one who gives the invitation there at the beginning. Let us go across to the other side, and then yeah, it is. They took him, so the disciples took him with them. I think. You know, like, who's, who's in charge here? That, that actually might not be a bad question to consider. It was a, a professor of mine in college who pointed this out to me in this text, because as you know, we, we just read this, Jesus is going to come down pretty hard on his disciples. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And he, he made the point that my professor in college did, that the reason Jesus asks them, have you still no faith, is because he made him a promise at the beginning of the text, he said, let us go across the other side. He promised they were going to go to the other side so that when the storm came up, they should have trusted his promise and not have been afraid. They should have had faith in his promise. And so I bring that up because I was, I mean, as you can tell, it's stuck with me all those years that I thought was just a profound insight into this text. But I think it also plays into what you were bringing out, that it seems perhaps, maybe Mark is indicating to us with that change in, the subject of the verb that the disciples have already started to think we're going to take Jesus with us rather than sticking with his initial call. No, he's taking them along with him.
1: Yeah. And that, that is a, a profound insight of it. It kind of begs the question who's in charge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which I think, I think gets to to what you were saying at the very beginning, we were laying this out. Jesus is the main character. Of the miracles, he's the one in charge. He's the one doing the act, and and it is inviting. He is inviting us to learn who he is from that. Uh, what else is there just in the the text? Kind of the, the nuts and bolts that are there for us, Pastorial.
1: Um, kind of in the in the nuts and bolts. Jumping down to uh, verse forty, he starts to talk with them about being afraid, um, and this is a thing that's really kind of. Uh, peculiar about Mark, is Mark talks about the disciples being afraid actually quite a bit. This is the first time it comes up here in uh, chapter 4, verse 40. But then uh, in the next chapter, after Jesus' next miracle, when he uh, sees the demon-possessed man uh, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the people around who see what Jesus have done are afraid in chapter 6, verse 50, when Jesus is walking on the water, the disciples are afraid again. And kind of the the granddaddy of the fear statements in Mark is the women go to the tomb on the first day of the week, really early in the morning, and they see the stone rolled away from the tomb, and the angels talk to them, and they run away, for they were afraid. And the standard response to one of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of Mark is, is fear, which really kind of strikes us as odd. We would think, man, if I got to see Jesus' miracle, if I got to see him calm the storm, if the angels told me about Jesus' resurrection, I wouldn't be afraid. I would be joyful. I would be at peace. I would be calm. But these aren't the reactions that Mark describes the disciples as having. Instead, it shows their fear as very real people uh, who are seeing the work of their savior. And what do they do? They fear. And so this this has a, uh, to us a strange way of saying, when you see Jesus doing what he's doing, and when you can't wrap your mind around it because it's a miracle, fear happens. And that's okay. Because Jesus is going to continue to teach you, even with the question of have you still no faith or have you still little faith, he comes back and continues to say uh, what has happened uh, for us and to us.
0: I think there's a little more to explore there with that idea of fear in the life of the disciple, in the life of Jesus' disciples, in our lives today, too. What is the role of fear when it comes to the Christian life. But I think we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 1st. We're studying Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. We've got Pastor Peter Ill with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were talking about the role of fear as Mark lays it out in his gospel. And you said, this is the first time we see the disciples afraid. It's going to culminate in chapter 16 at the empty tomb with the women. And we were talking, and I wanted to save it for this side of the break so we didn't have to interrupt the conversation anymore, the role of fear in the Christian life. It seems in this text that the disciples' reaction of fear is a negative one, and yet we know, for example, from the catechism, we should fear and love God. So what is the proper role of fear in the Christian life? How does it sometimes turn to a negative aspect? Just dig into that a little bit more for us
1: when we see God in front of us, I almost want to say when we're confronted with God or confronted by God. And, and I think there is a place to talk that way. When you see God in front of you doing what God does, what is the knee jerk reaction? Sometimes I would like to say, Oh, it's always going to be faith and confidence, hope and joy. But that's not always the case for me as a sinner. And for me, who wants to put myself in charge, Uh, when I see God doing what God does, when he uh, speaks to me in scripture, when he speaks to me through my pastor and convicts me of my sin, uh, there are certainly times when I'm afraid, when I see not only my own sins of, of doing what he has told me not to do or not doing what he has told me to do, but also when I recognize my sinful condition I find myself open to the same question that he asks the disciples when he says, have you still no faith? And there are days when I live like I don't have faith. The very fact that, that Jesus could and should ask me that question absolutely terrifies me. I have not lived like he matters most. I have not lived, uh, like my like my prayers and my worship and his name are the things that matter most in my life. Instead, I lived like I mattered most and like I was driving the boat and in charge of the show. Um, and in that case, do I still live like I have no faith? Yeah, I do. And I think this is part of the human experience of sinners. That when we see our fear, we recognize that we have tried to put ourselves in charge once again. And whenever we feel out of control, it gets to be a really uncomfortable feeling. Uh, I still remember uh, a time back when I was in college, when I was in a little less of a round shape uh, than I am now. I had a friend invite me to go rock climbing. Um, And I don't know if any of our listeners have ever been rock climbing at one of the inside rock climbing gyms. They're kind of fun if you're like strong and muscular and stuff. I'm not so much, but it's still kind of fun. I try. Uh, and I had a friend who was about half my size connected to the other end of the rope. And as I started to climb up the, the rock wall with the little handholds and everything, I slipped and I came off the wall. And I was afraid for a, for a big second because here I was suspended in the middle of the air. And then I looked up and I saw my friend's shoes at about my eye level. And uh, the rope had picked my friend up and gotten me almost all the way back down to the floor. And I look at my friend and I said, what do we do now? And she said, well, I'm going to let us both down. Just trust me. That was hard. I don't like not being in control. A few minutes later, I climbed all the way up the wall. It was really impressive. And then my friend said, okay, go ahead and take your hands off the wall and just lean back and I'll let you down. And I still remember looking down at her and saying, you want me to do a who what? That... You think I'm just going to like let you lower me down? And they said, yeah, that's how this works. And so I did. But being not in control is really, really terrifying for me. Uh, maybe parents have that same experience when they first get in the car and they have a, a, a student driver with their permit who's driving them around. And that, too, is its own kind of being not in control. For us as sinners, we want to be in control and we want to live like we matter most. And we want to look at Jesus and say, Don't you care? We can very much see ourselves without spiritualizing, we can see ourselves saying to Jesus, Don't you care about what I'm going through? Don't you care that I am completely and totally powerless here? And even when we tell Jesus that we're not in control, we're quick to tell him what we want him to do so that, so that we kind of sort of still are in control.
0: Yeah, that, that is a, I think you summed up well, the human experience, the experience that we have as sinners. It's striking. And I think this comes out even more in the next text where Jesus will cast out a demon when he gets to the other side of the sea, that the fear comes right after this display of great power from Jesus and i think we're perhaps we're so accustomed and we know the account of Jesus cross and what he does with that power ultimately that he he lays it aside in great weakness to save us that's how he uses his power we're so accustomed to see it as a comfort that sometimes we forget how striking it must have been for the disciples in this text and then again in the next text as we will see in the the account of the demon being cast out that to see such a, a great power over something that they knew was really powerful. I mean, these are several of them are fishermen who would have been familiar with the storms that would come up on the Sea of Galilee. They knew how powerful these storms could be. Here they got a man who just with a word calms that storm. That's got a that's kind of fearful to to see that kind of power in a man, and and I think perhaps. We are so accustomed to the whole story, which the disciples haven't seen at this point, that, that we lose sight of that. We forget what that would have been for them. And then, as you said, how we do still experience that ourselves today. So so well well said, Pastor Ill. As we think about this text as a whole, and again, we're looking at this text as a miracle. What does this reading say about Jesus? Let's keep answering that question. What does this text say about Jesus?
1: Well, the first thing that this text says about Jesus is that obviously he has authority over creation to the point where he is simply able to get up and with a word, stop the storm. Um, One of the resources that I was looking at actually uh, recommends the translation instead of just peace, be still, uh, actually says, uh, shut up. Uh, And I I was kind of taken by that. Um, But... That emphasis that Jesus can simply by a word control creation is really, really remarkable. And it calls us to remember that this, this miracle has a certain tie uh, to the creation account in Genesis 1. So we start out with, it's evening, and they're in a boat on the water. Well, it reminds us of Genesis 1, right before uh, it talks about how there was evening and there was morning the first day. It talks about how the sea was formless and void, um, or formless and empty, um, and kind of chaotic. And God spoke, and the sea was uh, calmed. And then God put the sea, put the water into seas, and separated out areas for dry land. And we see this kind of connection with the Old Testament, that it's God who has power over creation. And here, Jesus gets up in the boat and has power over creation. And I don't think that, as Mark is telling this, that uh, that he's unaware that he just kind of happened into this. Uh, I think that there's a certain tie that, no, this this is supposed to be a a confession that Jesus is the word of God who was present at the creation of all things, and Jesus is God in the flesh who still has authority over all creation.
0: With that connection to to Genesis 1, I think that's a a very important connection to make, that especially as we as the readers of the Gospel of Mark would answer the question there that the disciples are asking in verse twenty forty. 1, who then is this, that we would be reminded of Genesis chapter 1 and answer the question in the way that you are saying, that we would recognize, who is this? This is the God who created all things here in the flesh as our Savior. With that, and just this authority that Jesus has, the authority of Jesus has been a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark so far, and it will continue to be as the text continues. Particularly, I want to talk to you about verse 39 where Jesus is said to rebuke the wind, and then he speaks those words, peace, be still. A lot of the language there is not all that different from Mark chapter one, where Jesus is confronted by a man with a, an unclean spirit there in Mark chapter one. And in Mark 125, the text reads, Jesus rebuked him. That is the man, the, the unclean spirit saying, be silent and come out of him. Sounds There's, there's some similarities in language there. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to, I want to say the wrong thing, but is there is there a connection there? And, and if so, what's the connection? Is it simply the fact that Jesus has this authority or is there is there something to the tumult of the sea and the way demons cause chaos in humanity that, that we can connect those... And, Hopefully I'm making sense here, Pastor Hill. Can can you help me connect those things?
1: I I think I take your question as, is there a connection between the chaos of the sea and the chaos of demon possession? Yes. Am I kind of tracking? You nailed it. Um, That's a wonderful question that I haven't thought about enough to to really give a good answer to. Um, But you do, as you pointed out, the similarity of the language uh, of the kind of peace, be still. And also, what happens as soon as Jesus and his disciples get to the other side? They're confronted with a demon-possessed man going from uh, one chaotic situation to another. Uh, I think that that would be a really interesting question to, to continue kind of holding up as we see Jesus doing water miracles and Jesus casting out demons in the Gospel of Mark. But I'm, I'm afraid I'm not ready to answer it today.
0: Well, and I I I I was too was thinking forward into the next text where we're gonna see those two things actually come together to a degree where Jesus is going to cast out a demon and then those demons are gonna go into some pigs who'll go into the sea. And so I'll I'll talk about that with the next guest too, and we'll we'll see what we can do with that. I I think there's a connection. I want to be careful there. I don't want to say that the sea is somehow demon-possessed. I don't think I want to um, say that.
1: With that said, I think though, there's a connection. There is uh Some of the other writings of um, around the time of scripture talk about how it was commonly believed that the sea was um, haunted or was spiritually possessed. I I don't quite want to say demon possessed, but there was a thought that there were spirits out on the sea, uh, which explains when Jesus is walking on the water, why the disciples kind of default to some thought that it was a phantom or a ghost uh, or some kind of of an evil spirit on the sea. It sounds like there's a wonderful there's a wonderful uh graduate paper in there somewhere uh, for us. Um if you feel like taking a graduate class, Pastor Apple, go for it. I want to read that paper.
0: This is this is where I turn to my Bible class and and I say to them, Okay, write a five page double space paper and bring it back to me tomorrow.
1: Yeah. That's a good week. idea. Just now, don't ask I, me I, to I do it. Think-
0: that's right well yeah i'll I'll ask tomorrow's guess so i i think i think there's a connection there i'm just i i don't want to put it in the wrong way and i think it's something worth we're thinking about if nothing else again we have the authority of jesus he has authority over demons he has authority even over his creation and i think as, as you pointed out the ultimate thing that we want to recognize from this is that the god who created by his word in genesis chapter one is present here in the boat with his disciples. Uh, what else do we do we see about Jesus from this text?
1: Um, we also see that Jesus is with his disciples. Even when he's with them in the boat and he's sleeping on the cushion, uh, he rescues them. And it's not that Jesus was waiting for them to wake him because he couldn't heal or he couldn't calm the storm without the disciples' intervention, but Jesus is there with them, and Jesus provides this rescue, um, even over against, uh, in this case, nature. And in a world where we see nature that turns against us sometimes, we wonder, does God care in light of sicknesses, or does God care in light of natural disasters or storms? Uh, you know, Is God interested in what's going on with us? and Jesus gets up and his first order of business is to rescue his disciples and that's exactly what Jesus does and he does it simply with a word because Jesus words do exactly what Jesus says they should do when Jesus says peace be calm what happens there is peace there is calm and then he is able to go on uh, asking his question asking the question of the disciple have you still no faith and they sit there and ask this question of faith, of who is this? And Jesus' words do exactly what they say they're going to do. If you want your 50-cent your, uh, theological word, Jesus' words are efficacious. They do exactly what they say they're going to do.
0: That might be worth a whole dollar. Okay.
1: Inflation. My mom always t- called words like that, 50-cent words. Um, but I think we need to adjust for inflation these days.
0: Yeah. Jesus' words are efficacious. They do what he says. And, and again, we've seen this in the in the gospel already several times, which I, this is, I, I think, a really important point when you think about the gospel of, the Mar- of Mark as a whole, in that he doesn't give us as much teaching as the other evangelists do. And yet by emphasizing just how powerful Jesus' words is, I think that gives a lot of weight to the words he does record. That, that as we listen to his teaching, we recognize those words come from the same guy who used a couple of words here and calms the storm on a sea. And that, I think it lends a lot of weight to the teaching we do get in the gospel of Mark. One thing I, I want to, I don't want to pass by too quickly, if nothing else, just to point it out, this matter that Jesus, as they're taking this trip across the, the lake, he's in the stern and he's asleep on the cushion, which I mean, that, I don't know, maybe, maybe I don't want to make too much of this, but that's, I think that's really cool that Jesus slept <laughs> right <laughs> uh,
1: this is certainly a confession of Jesus humanity um, I know I've, I've been seeing the advertisements uh, for uh, for sweatshirts that you can get that say uh, Jesus took naps be like Jesus and take naps and I'm thinking you know on a, on a day like today man I could maybe I could use a nap I, uh, but we certainly see that uh, Jesus is completely and totally a human person who takes naps, and when he wakes up from his nap, he commands the wind and the sea, and they obey him. In this snapshot, you have a picture of Jesus' humanity and his divinity uh, happening all together, because it's not like Jesus has to flip a switch to go from human Jesus to divine Jesus, but he has two natures in one Christ. He sleeps on a cushion, and he commands the wind and the sea to obey him, and it all happens because Jesus is completely human and completely divine all at the same time.
0: In, in that humanity that we see here so clearly as he sleeps, I think you you see a picture of the faith that he would have his disciples have, that Jesus trusts his heavenly father, even in the midst of this storm that is coming up on the sea, that he is able to sleep and and perhaps that invites a, a connection to one of our other seagoing friends in the scriptures Jonah
1: it, it does there, as I was reading this there are just a lot of parallels with with Jonah as uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says go to Nineveh and uh, Nineveh is is up in modern-day Iraq but Jonah jumps a ship and starts to sail instead of walking to the northeast he sails to the west. And he's sleeping on this storm-tossed ship that uh, the sailors say is going to be broken apart. And at one point, they come down and they ask him why he's snoring. And he says, uh, "He says I've done the opposite of what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has called me to do. Throw me into the sea. That should fix it. And so they throw Jonah into the sea, um, and Yahweh calms the storm. But Jonah still wasn't in charge because when Jonah falls into the sea, he's swallowed by a great fish. Uh, and God continues to control the rest of the book of Jonah. And you see kind of a a very similar reaction of Jesus is sleeping in a boat that's becoming swamped. The waves are coming in over the the top of the sides. Um and his disciples come to him. They don't ask him about his snoring, but they do ask if he cared that they were drowning. And then Jesus did what Jonah couldn't do. He controlled the sea. He did what Yahweh did in the story of Jonah. And Jesus shows himself to be the one greater than Jonah. Uh, This is also kind of interesting because in Matthew and in Luke, uh, as the crowds are talking to Jesus, they say, what sign will you give us that you are greater than, uh, that that you can say these things? And Jesus says in both Matthew and in Luke, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, that as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, um, on the third day I will rise. But in Mark, there is no account of the sign of Jonah. Jesus just talks about not giving them a sign. But here... This might be a little bit of a flyer, but I think this is Jesus teaching about the sign of Jonah in Mark's Gospel, when he stands up and he does what Jonah can't do, by controlling the sea and the wind, and by doing what Jonah couldn't do. And there you have Jesus giving his disciples and giving the people a sign that uh, that confesses Jonah was sent by God, and he did. He spoke God's word. I am bigger and better than Jonah because I'm God in the flesh.
0: Yeah, the, the thing, I, I like the connection to Jonah there, because as you, and you're bringing out the sign of Jonah, and I'd have to think a little bit about that one, Pastor Earl, to to see if if maybe this is a connection to the sign of Jonah in some way, shape, or form, because you're right, Mark doesn't give us that exact same quotation of Jesus when it comes to that question, which I think that comes in. About chapter eight of Mark, something like
1: right, that. right, right. Um, the, the
0: thing. Well, go ahead.
1: Oh. Well, I I remember um, in seminary learning about this by by one of our one of our best Mark scholars in our in our church body, and uh, as as he was talking about it, he said, you know, in the other places Jesus says, "I'll give you the sign of Jonah," uh, but he said the way that it works later in Mark when they ask for a sign. Jesus says something more along the lines of, "I'll be doggoned uh, if I give you a sign at all," um, and I, I, I'm taking a guess, and I might, I might not be right. So definitely take this with a grain of salt. But uh, could it be that here Jesus has already given the sign of Jonah in Mark four, so that when you get to Mark eight, he doesn't talk about the sign of Jonah because he's already shown he's better than Jonah. I'm not I, sure I'm right on this one, but it's an interesting thought. I, yeah,
0: and I, I appreciate that. And I, I think the thing that I like about at least bringing the sign of Jonah to bear and connecting it with what the other gospel writers do give us that Jesus said, the thing I like about that is that bringing Jonah in and the sign of Jonah being the three days and the resurrection Invites us to see this miracle in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. I, I don't know if you you laid this out in your rules for miracles earlier, but it is a a danger, I think, to view the miracles as, oh, look, Jesus did something really cool. And that's that's not what they are. I think that that falls under your point one, that what is this teaching us about Jesus? And if we if we look at the miracles apart from the death and resurrection of our lord then i think that danger becomes all the greater but when we see them in light of what he will do in his death and resurrection i think that really helps us to to keep it together uh, to, to go from the fear that the disciples have here in that great power that jesus exercises to the place where he takes away that fear which is in his death when he when he uses that great power of god to die for our sins which is just a fantastic contrast that i mean as paul proclaims in first corinthians 1 there's the power of god for our salvation which is proclaimed to you and to me in the gospel I, I, so uh, whether or not mark is is doing something with the sign of jonah here in mark chapter 4 i don't know but i think drawing those connections invites us to stay focused on what jesus would have us see from this miracle and really from all his miracles uh, pastor Elle, we got oh, three and a half minutes here and, and i know. You really want to answer this question for us, and you always do such a fantastic job of pointing us to Jesus. So the disciples say, who then is this? Who is Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? Answer that question for us.
1: In this miracle, as Jesus calms the storm from the boat, Jesus shows that he himself is the one who was present in the beginning when the water was controlled. He cares and he rescues his people by the power of his word and ultimately by the power of his death and resurrection. And sometimes our human reaction to Jesus' work is fear. When we see what Jesus does and who Jesus is, sometimes we're afraid because we're not in control. But our fear doesn't change who Jesus is. When you're afraid, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is in control and in charge of all things. And when you aren't afraid, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who controls all things. And this miracle confronts us and gets us asking the very same question that the disciples ask, who then is this? And it leads us and the church today to make this confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. In the middle of the very real natural disasters that we experience today, Jesus is the Christ. In the middle of our questions about who is Jesus and why do I care, Jesus is the Christ. Nothing that we go through is going to change the fact that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is in control. And so we recognize that Jesus is present with us by the power of his word, the one who is crucified and raised from the dead rescues us and does something for us even better than calming a storm around us. He gives us the forgiveness of our sins. He controls all things, and he has prepared a place for us to live with him forever as he controls everything.
0: Pastor Peter Ill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstott, Illinois, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you for the chance, and God's blessing to you and to all of our listeners.
0: Who then is this? This is Jesus Christ, the God who is present at the beginning, who created all things, the God who is present with his church still, creating us recreating us in faith toward him. Rejoice, trust in this Jesus Christ. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. If you have any questions on this text or the gospel of Mark, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org. We love to hear from our listeners here on Sharper Iron. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again tomorrow.